Disease. I'm one of your hosts, Cody Weston. And I'm Kavita Chapla. And today we have a special guest, Dr. Karen Swartz. Dr. Swartz, would you care to introduce yourself? Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm a psychiatrist who works at Johns Hopkins, who's made the focus of what I do mood disorders. So that's depression and bipolar disorder primarily. Dr. Swartz, can you tell us a little bit about what you do on a day-to-day basis, what your work consists of? I have a really interesting combination of a couple different projects. The one I feel most passionately about is working with individuals who have either depression or bipolar disorder, where I'm their psychiatrist and we're working to get their symptoms under control so they can enjoy their lives much more. The other things I work on have to do with education, educating medical students and residents so they know more about mood disorders and can do a good job in the future. And then I have another project that I'm really passionate about, where we go into high schools to teach high school students and their teachers and their parents about depression so they can recognize if they're having symptoms or if a friend is and get rid of the big delay that often happens between someone starting to have particularly depression and eventually getting the kind of help that can really make a difference. Gotcha. And that seems like a particularly vulnerable population since there's so much ambiguity in terms of mood changes and life changes going on, and so much is out of an adolescent's control, it must be an even more ambiguous situation to have depression appear at that time on top of those factors. Well, in the high schools, we talk a lot about the difference between little d depression, which is a lot of what you're mentioning, Hmm. where you have changes in how you feel and you're more emotional and maybe you're even more reactive, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the kind of big D depression that's actually a medical problem. All of us end up having times where we're really disappointed or angry or frustrated or, you know, have things go exactly the opposite way that we want them to go. Mm -hmm. What's different with big D depression is that in addition to having changes where maybe you feel sad or irritable or disappointed, you also have changes in your physical symptoms where your sleep gets messed up, your energy's off, you can't concentrate, you can't focus, and you can't have fun. You know, often when people are frustrated in their life, they're frustrated with the person frustrating them. Maybe that's their parents, maybe it's their friends. But if they're with the other people they're not upset with, they have fun. They have a perfectly nice time. Mm -hmm. Depression robs you of the capacity to get excited and feel joy with everybody. So one of the follow-up questions I was interested in is what drew you to work in mood disorders specifically within all the subdomains of psychiatry available? Well, the interesting thing about mood disorders is that in general, people get better. To be perfectly frank, I like that. I like that (laughs) there's a really good chance that if we were able to work together and, and a person and I were able to find things helpful to them, that they could get really well and get back to their life. And related to that, I've actually run into, in my own training, a number of patients with what I would consider sort of bread and butter mood disorders severe depression, but nothing out of the ordinary, out of what we would expect. And because of the severity of the depression, it's just impossible to persuade them that they're ever going to get better. Have you found any way to deliver that, that message in a way that 
they find helpful, even if their mood's not really able to be elevated in that state? Well, you've hit something important. Part of being depressed is you lose your optimism. Mm -hmm. You lose your ability to believe that things can get better. It's Mm -hmm. a pretty evil illness in that it actually attacks your confidence. Now, the thing that's helpful of having a bit of experience, so now I've been working at Hopkins as an attending, a supervising doctor for more Mm -hmm. than 20 years, I'll often use this line with people. I'll say, my optimism comes from experience. Hmm. I've worked with other people that have gone through this and who I've seen get better. And so because I've been on this path with other people, I'm optimistic we can help you feel better. Hmm. And I often will say, I understand that you can't believe me right now. Yeah. Mm And so I think it's important to acknowledge what the person's going through, but truly, my optimism comes from the work I've done with others. Hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that is helpful because it can feel challenging to know that the depression itself is, is taking away their ability to, as you said, their optimism and their ability to, to hope. What's well, a powerful thing to predict to someone what they're going through. Mm-hmm. So when you sit down and talk to someone who's going through depression, if you're able to say, I wonder if you're also experiencing these things, whether it's a lack of confidence mm-hmm. or an inability to feel joy, et cetera. Then they look at you with a bit of a, how do you know that? And then you're able to say, look, I know that because it's like other illnesses. Mm-hmm. You know you know what happens with a heart attack. We've seen lots of people that have heart attacks. We know what happens with depression because it's a really common illness and we've taken care of a lot of people that go through depression and then get better from depression. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So, Dr. Schwartz, as somebody who's very active as a psychiatrist and as a community member, where do you think the areas for improvement lie in psychiatry, and what resources would you like to see in the community more available for people with psychiatric disorders? So, if we're going to make real improvement in the community, I think there are a couple different things we need to do. One thing is to improve awareness. Mm-hmm. Psychiatry is a field that's mysterious to people. Mm-hmm. Depression affects 20% of women and 10% of men, and yet most people don't really think of it as a real problem, mm. let alone a medical illness. Mm-hmm. And so we need just some basic information. Think about all the amazing campaigns about if these things are happening, you're having a stroke. Mm-hmm. If these things are happening, call 911. So we can do it. Mm-hmm. And so we need some really basic information from a an education point of view. And then what we need are more resources. There's tremendous discrimination against patients with psychiatry. Mm. Their treatment is not covered in the same way the treatment is for other medical conditions, even Mm -hmm. though we know it's biologically based. And in many areas, there just are terrible disparities where there aren't psychiatrists or psychologists or social workers available. Mm -hmm. And so there you have to rely on other providers who may or may not have a lot of skill or training. Mm -hmm. So my goal is for people to know more so they can advocate for themselves and identify symptoms in themselves and others. And then the other goal, an important goal, is to have better trained providers that are available all over our country. Related to the issue of access, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on telepsychiatry and this idea that in the not-too-distant future, it might be possible for people to reach out to mental health providers through mobile interfaces. Do you think that that's something that's realistically going to be able to catch on? What potential do you see there? So some of the graduates from our residency program that I'm in touch with are doing Mm -hmm. telepsychiatry. And so I think it has potential. What I worry about, even with really sophisticated interfaces Mm -hmm. where you can see your provider and they can see you, 
there are subtle things about assessment, especially mm-hmm. as you're more experienced, that being in the room with someone and picking up on their energy and subtle things about their appearance and the way they're interacting, I'm not sure that technology can fully capture that. Huh. The other issue is I think that special people are capable of generating a real connection mm-hmm. through technology. So even though they're doing telepsychiatry, that patient and the doctor can feel like they're really connected and working together. Mm -hmm. But it's so hard to keep people in treatment. Hmm. Treating depression is very doable, but it's not easy. The medicines we use take four to six weeks to start working. People are suffering. No one expects it to take that long to feel better. So we have a real challenge with people dropping out of treatment. And I think if you have a relationship, if you've met together, if you've been in the same room together, mm-hmm. I wonder if that might help keep some people engaged, whereas if it's going to a room and talking to an interface, maybe that wouldn't be as good. Hmm. I mean, right now, there are parts of the country where there just aren't adequate providers, and mm-hmm. so yeah. I think it's a good stopgap, mm-hmm. but long-term... Maybe I'm a little old school, but I think being in the room with someone is there's an opportunity to provide hope mm-hmm. that is more effective if you're actually sitting with someone. That makes a lot of sense. What I've found, and I know I'm just starting my practice, is that using technology to augment face to face care has been really helpful. I know one of my patients I'm heavily in communication with just by texting, and even just being able to check in that way has been tremendously helpful. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it, that technology can supplement what you're doing face-to-face. Because I find that I can, you know, email or talk on the phone with people that I've seen, but unless I've seen them, I usually can't give them advice that I think will be useful to them. I think you've hit on something very important. There's a big difference between the effectiveness of ongoing communication when you already have a working relationship Versus establishing one. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's true. I do think, though, that, you know, technology is a way that we can check in more easily. They've Mm -hmm. shown certain studies that, for example, having a nurse or someone from the the clinic call and say, did you get that prescription refilled? Are you taking Mm -hmm. your medication? Can help people have better adherence to the the prescribed care. And that's not just for psychiatric medicine. That's for Mm -hmm. all kinds of medication. So I think we want to be open to how we use it. I just think we want to make sure we don't have it substituting for something that might be better. Yeah, Yeah. that makes sense. There's that idea of sunk cost as well, that people might tend to devalue it if they didn't have to make the investment to go somewhere, uh, the investment in time, and they might subtly tell themselves that it's less valuable because it's coming right to their pocket. Well, I also think it's also what kind of relationship can you have? Again, Mm -hmm. there may be people, because I don't practice this way, I see patients Mm -hmm. in person, but I do then talk to them on the phone and mm-hmm. have other conversations. The longer I've worked with someone, it might be just a few minutes on the phone and I can tell how they're doing because mm-hmm. I know them extremely well, but that comes out after a period of time of building that relationship. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So Dr. Swartz, you've been working in the field for a while now. What areas of research would you like to see more development in in psychiatry? What are some questions that you find yourself asking again and again, that don't seem to have better answers now than were available a few years ago or a few decades ago even? (laughs) Well, the challenge, of course, is that the brain is a mystery. So when I finished my fellowship and started working on a genetics project, Mm -hmm. everyone had great optimism that we would have genetics figured out in a few years. Mm. So that was 1997. It is really complicated. What I'd like to know 
is what is causing these illnesses. What I'd like to know is what changes in the brain. What I'd like to know are the cascades where the medicines we have now are working. So instead of giving someone something that takes 20 steps in the brain to work, Mm -hmm. we could say, let's go right to step 17. And so what I would love for us to have is a better understanding of the underlying causes so that we can have more targeted treatments. As I said, right now for mood disorders, we have good treatments, but they are challenging to use, particularly because we do not have a way to know the best thing for an individual person, Mm -hmm. and there's a delay between starting and getting the benefit, which is really hard to put up with if you are suffering. Yeah, it's really hard to tell patients that that we are essentially doing trial and error, and that's the state of the art. Because, I mean, when they have severe depression or are in a depressive state of another mood disorder, if you're telling them that the best we can do is essentially throw darts at what we think are the 10 most reliably useful treatments, and I can't predict whether SSRIA Mm -hmm. is going to be better than TCAB out the gate, I can see where that's got to fill them with a little bit of doubt, especially in the setting of the negativity they're already experiencing. Well, I think that's the hard part. When you're already not optimistic that anything can help and you try something Mm -hmm. and you did your part and you took and it didn't work, I think it takes a lot of education and support. And being honest about these are the limitations we have to be able to go forward and try the second thing or maybe even the third thing. I think if we went to cardiology, we'd find that there are similar trial and error. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, most people know about antibiotics, and they know that if they (laughs) give a sample, they'll know which is the right medicine to treat their urinary tract infection Mm -hmm. in a couple days. So there's greater optimism that we we can figure it all out with science than we have right now. Mm -hmm. I would love that to change. Yeah, Yeah, and I don't want to get too far off into the woods, but that's where... I find it interesting, some of these therapies that are being investigated. I know ketamine hasn't panned out so well, but things like that and the work with psilocybin, whether or not they pan out, the uh, evidence seems to be that they are at least quicker acting, and I wonder if those will appeal to people. Well, I would like something that's quicker acting and has sustained benefit, and I haven't seen that yet, Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. that would be the really exciting thing. Yeah, that's my understanding of the ketamine work, and hopefully we'll be able to speak in the future with Dr. Kaplan about that. But it does seem to help briefly, but it just peters right out. Some people it helps briefly. Okay. The more demoralizing thing, because it's being touted as this great new wonder drug, mm. is that there are individuals, I've had patients try it because they really were in a place that that's what they wanted to do next, and I respected that, and they've had no benefit at all. And then there's a sense of, oh my gosh, if this doesn't work, nothing will work. And there's no reason to think that. Mm -hmm. It's like every one of our treatments. There's a subset of people for whom that's a good treatment. There's another group of people where something else would be better. We just can't predict yet. Yeah. And I find it especially frustrating. I I did a rotation in the emergency department at uh, the University of Michigan back as a fourth year uh, med student. And being in that acute situation and knowing that There's very little we can do to make anybody feel better that day, that Mm -hmm. week, is really frustrating. Well, it's very hard because especially if you're taking care of patients that have depression or bipolar disorder where they either have severe depression or mania, their suffering's clear. Mm -hmm. And you're correct. We have very few things unless they're having distorted thinking or things that sometimes come with depression and mania. There's very little we can do where we're predicting a change in the next 24 or 48 hours. While we're on the subject of depression treatment, I wonder if I could get your thoughts on the 
phenomenon that's colloquially called Prozac poop out, this idea that the same SSRI can just stop working after a couple of years. I think that might be worth discussing a little bit just because I think some of our listeners may be on treatment and might not have been led to expect this. Well, it's a well-known phenomenon now. Mm-hmm. And there's some kind of accommodation or adjustment that the brain obviously has, particularly to SSRIs. It's less well described with other antidepressant classes. Uh-huh. Those that are very serotonergic, like Effexor or Venlafaxine, also have it. Okay. And so it's hard. Someone's doing exactly what they've been asked to do. They're taking their medicine exactly as prescribed, and it mm-hmm. stops working. Some people never have it. Others have it. I've seen it in six months or a year. For others, it's eight years later. And I think it's just important to talk about it openly. So if someone starts feeling worse, the best thing to do is to make a change quickly Mm -hmm. to a different antidepressant. Sometimes Mm -hmm. that's a different SSRI. Sometimes it's a different class. But it's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily need to be a different class. Okay. Yeah, I just thought that was an important message to get out there because if anybody's not aware of that for whatever reason, I know, for example, a lot of antidepressants are prescribed by primary care physicians mm-hmm. who may not have the time to explain these kinds of details. I just want to make sure that that information hits as many ears as we can get it to. So Dr. Swartz, what do you think that people, we've talked a little bit about what us as physicians or people who are in medicine should do to help people with depression. What do you think people who are outside of the field of medicine can do to help people with depression and prevent everyone from feeling demoralized about depression and bipolar disorder? So I think there are two parts of that. One is if you have someone you love going through a really severe episode of depression or bipolar Mm -hmm. disorder, there's some really basic things you can do to help. Get them to go out for a walk with you. Mm -hmm. Take them dinner. Recognize that they can't focus long enough to watch a movie and watch a short TV show. Do really basic things like that. Mm -hmm. I have done that not in my role as a physician, but as my role as a friend. Mm -hmm. And what I realized was that we sometimes underestimate as physicians how helpful just having someone next to you when you're suffering that way is. Mm -hmm. So all those sort of practical things. Do you have plans for dinner? I'm going to get you to your appointment. You know, often when people are thinking about going to treatment, that's quite intimidating. So Mm -hmm. I've often said to friends who have come to say, you know, I just heard you talk about this. I have a friend I'm worried about. I said, well, help them identify a provider and Mm -hmm. then go with them to the first appointment. Ask them about how they're feeling. Encourage them and say, I'm so sorry you're feeling this way. But it takes time to get better. That's what I understand about depression. So hang in there. So those kind of basic encouragements, I think, are really important. Yeah, it does seem like there's a lot that can be done from a, the standpoint of moral support. One thing I want to say about moral support, I think it's terrific. I think it's terrific to make sure that people know you love them, mm-hmm. you care about them, you're not running away because they have something that makes them more irritable or a little harder to be around, because it's true. Mm-hmm. Most people who are depressed or hypomanic or certainly manic are harder to be around, and so they often lose friends. So just hanging in there will do a lot. Mm. But I do want to say that there is a difference between having that role in someone's life when they're getting formal treatment that actually we think will lead to their feeling better Mm -hmm. versus just helping them be supported through a horrible long episode where they're not getting treatment. Mm. The first step of being a really great friend or family member is to make sure the person's getting the kind of treatment that can shorten how long they're suffering. That makes a lot of sense. And that's where I find the... The stigma can be 
a real challenge because there is still this prevailing attitude in a lot of circles that antidepressants are to be avoided, that depression is some sort of a moral weakness. I was speaking with someone uh, a couple of weeks ago who was saying, oh, I was feeling depressed, but I didn't want to go get on antidepressants because I heard they're hard to get off of, which it makes sense from a certain like antibiotics logic, but I wonder if we're failing to educate people on the natural course of depression and what's likely to happen if they don't seek out treatment. I think the average well-educated person knows nothing about this. Hmm. I've been in hundreds of schools Mm -hmm. talking to groups of parents and teachers and kids, and the average well-educated person understands none of this. So what they're getting is information that's distorted, often sensationalized, and they're not getting some basic facts. But we used to tell people with asthma to go sit down and take deep breaths. <laughs> I'm in my mid-50s, and that's how my friends in middle school were told to deal with their asthma. Wow. wow. No one would do that now. It would be malpractice. Mm-hmm. We've learned a lot about better treatment for asthma. We're learning a lot about better treatment for depression. And hopefully we get there that the version of let's get you your inhaler right away happens. Yeah. But we're far from there. People are embarrassed to go to see a psychiatrist, they're embarrassed to say they need it, which is one reason that we really want our primary care colleagues to be well-educated in how to treat this. Mm -hmm. Many people will consider the option of seeing a primary care doctor when they would not be open to seeing a psychiatrist or other mental health provider. Yeah. Yeah, and given that since the advent of SSRIs, we do have medications that are somewhat easier to use as a first line, it seems like that's a much more viable option than it once was. Well, before there were SSRIs, which are essentially less dangerous just as medications, Mm -hmm. there were very few people treated by anyone but a psychiatrist with the older medications. Mm -hmm. So it's truly revolutionized who is comfortable treating depression, which is important because there's no way there are enough specialists to treat everyone that has depression. Absolutely. Yeah. And... I don't know how to exactly phrase this question, but I'm coming back to your description of big D versus little d depression. What's your message for people who have experienced demoralization and things like this little d depression and have a hard time understanding when their friend or loved one just can't snap out of it through life changes, situational changes, et cetera, but they truly do need more help than that? Well, I think you have to start with some pretty basic information that that they perhaps have never experienced what their friend is going through. Mm. I've had a lot of high school students say when they finally got their courage up to tell a friend, Mm -hmm. I'm having depression, the friend often responds with, oh, I've been depressed. Uh, And since it's about 5% of teens, 5 to 10% of teens that will have had depression, they probably haven't been depressed. Mm -hmm. And so what they get is a sort of flippant response saying, oh, we've all been through this. We've all been disappointed. Mm-hmm. We've all been demoralized. Those are things that happen. But you know, thankfully, the majority of us won't go through the challenge that is to be depressed. And so I think the only way to do it is to get information out about what really does that involve? What are the other symptoms that go along with feeling sad? Mm-hmm. The majority of people with depression don't even feel sad. So you have irritable teenagers with changes Mm -hmm. in energy and sleep and concentration and having suicidal thoughts that don't think they're depressed because they don't have sadness. And so the word depression that we use medically to describe it doesn't match their experience. And that's something that was on my mind as well. You've treated people of 
many different age groups, many different walks of life. What are some of the more unusual presentations of depression that you'd like people to know about that they might not identify as quickly as traditional depression? So with teenagers, we know many will present with irritability rather than sadness as the change in mood. Okay. Most people will have some version of that lacking excitement or joy. Mm-hmm. Now, some will have what we call more typical symptoms, and they will, you know, teenagers will be irritable, they can't sleep, they have no energy, they can't focus, they can't concentrate, and they don't see the point of being alive. Mm-hmm. That's sort of a typical teenage presentation. Okay. The stereotype presentation is a middle-aged woman who's tearful all the time, mm-hmm. feeling sad, withdrawn, doubting her abilities as a mother. And again, there's a subset of people that go through that. Uh Mm -hmm. And then with older individuals who have often other triggers, such as serious co-occurring medical problems, Mm -hmm. they often will have a lack of feeling. They just don't feel anything at all. They feel isolated. They feel like they're a burden to their family. I mean, it really comes down to changes in mood, physical changes, and changes in how you feel about yourself. But the mood changes differ through the lifespan, the physical changes can be either more sleep or less sleep, increased appetite or decreased appetite. So it's typically changes in sleep and appetite and concentration, which is inevitably poor concentration. But the other parts that are really the individual parts, am I irritable versus sad versus feeling nothing, or how does it manifest that you've lost your confidence? Mm-hmm. If you look at the way people come to my office and describe that they've lost their sense of themselves, Mm -hmm. for teens, they'll come and say, teenage girls will come and say, I'm fat and ugly. Mm -hmm. Teenage boys will come and say, I'm not cool. I'm kind of a wimp. No one wants to be my friend. Mm -hmm. Middle-aged women will come and tell me they're bad mothers. Mm -hmm. Middle-aged men will come and say they're bad providers. And older individuals like my parents in their 80s will come and say they feel they're a burden to their family. Mm. It's the same symptom changing how you feel about yourself, losing your confidence. But how it manifests changes by attacking what you most value. And, you know, 15-year-olds are not Mm 85-year-olds. And so that's where I think the wonderful part of psychiatry comes in, where you really get to know the person in front of you rather than just making a bunch of assumptions. That's a really great way to describe it. I was talking to Lisa, one of um, your colleagues, one of my colleagues as well, and she was telling me about that same sort of you lose your confidence in your sense of self, and I like the way you laid it out kind of of different people, how that might show up in their lives. And sometimes someone's really dedicated to something else. Mm -hmm. Doctors decide they're terrible doctors because Mm -hmm. we tend to be a little too focused on work. (laughs) And that's okay too, but what you really need to do is figure out what do you value most? Mm -hmm. What will you be most upset about if you're not doing well, if you're disappointing yourself and others? And that's what you need to ask about. That's beautiful. And you can only know if you get to know the, the person in front of you, as you said. So we've talked a lot about depression. I wanted to make sure we say at least a little bit about surveillance for uh, the other major mood disorder, which is significantly rare, being bipolar disorder or manic depression. And what's your advice on the proper level of surveillance to have for what we would call manic symptoms, or I guess put a better way, if somebody's experienced depression and they're wondering if they might have bipolar disorder, what do you think they or the people around them should look for and what should they do differently if 
these things are there. I think one of the trickiest parts is knowing the difference between someone's come out of a depression where they found awful, and now they're feeling well. Maybe they're a little extra excited. Maybe they have a little extra energy because they're out of the depression. That's a tricky way to determine it. That's where I think it's a lot more helpful to rely on things like, how many hours are you sleeping? Because with Mm. mania, people have tons of energy, even if they're only sleeping two or three hours a night. Mm. How much are you spending? Are you not being careful because you have so much confidence, you have a perfect idea that will make a ton of money, that's mania, versus I didn't do anything when I was depressed because I didn't have an interest in anything, and now Mm -hmm. I realize I have to get some clothes or do some things in my house. Those aren't Mm -hmm. two different things. Mm -hmm. So you want to get, really, did the person, again, have changes in mood where they're over the top, changes in physical symptoms like I don't need sleep, I have a ton of energy, my thoughts are going a mile a minute, I'm talking really fast. And then also it's your sense of confidence. People will become so confident that they'll believe all kinds of things, including some things that seem outrageous to their family. Like, Mm -hmm. I've been selected for a special mission. Mm -hmm. I have insights that none of you have. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be able to cure cancer because now I understand it. And they're often very positive, very exciting ideas, but Mm -hmm. then you have to realize that's a wonderful idea, but you have no training or background that would make it likely that that's true. So it's a matter of really paying attention to... Now, wait a minute. This seems like an idea that's way out of the realm of what I'd expect from you. Okay. This is a bit of an aside, but Cody and Dr. Schwartz, how do you navigate the word bipolar? Because it's a word that people use um, in regular communication to, oh, he's bipolar. I don't know what he's thinking half the time. You know, they use it as this sort of slang term for someone who's difficult to understand or moody. Uh, How do you... Do you ever encounter uh, people with bipolar disorder who say, who are scared of the word or might not understand what it fully entails? Well, lots of people are afraid of the word because there's horrible discrimination associated with it. I think there's even more stigma associated with bipolar disorder than depression. Absolutely. Partly coming out of, you know, it's 1% of the population that has bipolar disorder rather than 15% where it's 10% of men and 20% of women. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, there's a lot of stigma. I also think that we have started using these, you know, big D, little d. I think we've Mm -hmm. started using these words very imprecisely. Mm -hmm. We just throw out there someone who's moody is bipolar. Now, I, of course, as a mood disorders person, don't think that at all. I think you're moody Mm -hmm. or you're changeable (laughs) or you wear your heart on your sleeve. But people use these words in a shorthand way that's pretty thoughtless. Mm -hmm. And they're often name-calling. To be perfectly honest, it's mm-hmm. often not a compliment. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a problem we even face within psychiatry. Kavita, one of the things in, in psych training I've encountered so mm-hmm. far is that we avoid using certain diagnostic labels that aren't useful, even if they are well-defined, just because they're thrown around pejoratively rather than being... Mm a reasonable part of the treatment plan. There are certain things, for example, borderline personality disorder. Uh-huh. If you put that in somebody's chart, all of a sudden there's a stigma even among healthcare professionals Oh yeah, where yeah. you can treat someone with borderline personality disorder without ever having to say that, without even necessarily having to have that discussion with them uh-huh. sometimes if you are able to describe their situation and introduce the best treatments in a way that's more supportive and not so labeling. And there's also an issue, which is that sometimes, especially with personality diagnoses, 
you can't accurately make a personality diagnosis when someone's severely depressed mm-hmm. or manic or having severe anxiety or other things. And so mm-hmm. we'll jump to want to have a whole bunch of labels. But if someone, even if it's coming out of their depression and not a personality disorder, is having certain self-destructive behaviors or mm-hmm. something where it's really getting in the way of their communication with friends and family, it has to be addressed. But it's not helpful to say, well, we have no idea of whether this is because you're de- really depressed or because you have a personality. Mm-hmm. That's not helpful. I think practical people are much more likely to say, we're identifying something that's really getting you into trouble. We don't want you getting into trouble in this way. What can we do to help you change that behavior? Yeah, I think it would be a good idea to talk about ADAP because I personally don't know the full extent of what you've done with it, and I'd like to know for my own purposes. But I do, I'm always happy to talk. <laughs> All right, I, I can tell you that you give out great socks that say ADAP. You give out canvas bags which say ADAP. I know that it has to do with the education and dissemination of useful information about adolescent depression to I've gathered high schools predominantly. But can you tell us a little bit about this work? And we're happy to, to help spread the word beyond local high schools and to uh, our listeners wherever they may be. So I'm very excited to talk about ADAP. Just to give a little history, mm-hmm. in 1998 in Baltimore, there were three high school students who died from suicide within a two-month period, wow. which really generated a response in the community. And so they came to Hopkins, and I was asked to go to one of the schools and speak to parents and then come back Mm -hmm. and speak to the teachers. And then they looked me in the eye and said, well, what are you going to do for the kids? Mm -hmm. Because we know that when there's been a tragedy, you don't want to have a big assembly. You want to individually deal with the closest friends of someone differently than someone who barely knew them. Mm -hmm. But the thought was, this is a real problem, and we don't think the students know much. What I can tell you from being in those high school libraries and auditoriums talking to parents right after these tragedies. It stunned me how little some of the best educated parents in Baltimore knew about depression. Everyone was having the same response. They wanted to make up a story to explain why this has happened to this teenager, but it could not possibly happen to my son or daughter. Wow. So the basic idea, which is that suicide is associated with having a mental illness that's either not treated or not responding to treatment was very unwelcome, but it was the truth. There's a horrible fact that on average, it takes eight years between the onset of depression for someone to get treatment. Wow. Now, it's episodic, and so people don't suffer that whole time, but they'll have an mm-hmm. episode in high school and get a bit better, or maybe even well, have another episode when they're first working or in college, and then later when they're trying to keep their job, raise their family, they finally get help. Now, eight years is in the middle of the average, which means some people never get help and some people are lucky. One of my big missions was to try to have young people know if there's something wrong with them so Mm -hmm. they would get help sooner or that they would encourage their friends to get help. Now, I had some bigger hopeful thoughts, which is that, gosh, if in high school, all high school students learn about depression in health class and got some good facts, Maybe they would be much kinder employers. Maybe they'd be more supportive spouses. Maybe Mm -hmm. they'd be more supportive parents. So I have a big mission and a little mission. And by the little mission, I mean a short-term mission. My short-term mission is that young people identify that they're ill or that a friend is ill. Mm -hmm. My longer-term mission is to change the basic knowledge that we have in this country and in our communities about depression so that people not only get help sooner, but also have much better support from those around them. Awesome. 
I love that so much. <laughs> well, it's, you know, the interesting thing is that this is now a 20-year effort. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this started because I was asked by the community to do something, but then it really turned into what is a very passionate personal mission for me. I do make socks and bags and things because I want to get the word out and also to thank my team and the teachers and others that work with us. But we have had the opportunity to collaborate with a lot of family foundations where someone in the family has had the tragedy of losing a child often to suicide. And they desperately want things to be different for other people's children. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're working with those kinds of families, it's a pretty powerful motivator to do good work. Yeah. We started where a tiny group of us, a couple psychiatrists and psychiatric nurses from Hopkins, did all the training as we developed the program. Mm -hmm. So for the first six years, a tiny group of us did all the teaching. We were in the classrooms. But we knew that wasn't sustainable. So then we did a training model where we trained nursing students and medical students to do the teaching, and we went with them Mm -hmm. to make sure that it was going well and that the training actually worked. Yeah. And now our model is that either by going online to our online training program or going to an in-person training where I've come to your city uh-huh. and we do a one-day training, we now have school-based professionals. That wow. might be teachers or counselors that get trained so they're able to provide the curriculum. That's obviously much more sustainable. Hmm. So what started as an personal response to tragedy locally mm-hmm. has spread into an effort where we've been to multiple states. And at this point, we've reached over 100,000 students. Wow. Wow. What was it like when you first were approached? And your interest is mood disorders, of course, but was this kind of a departure from where you had envisioned your career would go? Or were you excited to just kind of run with it? And, you know, now it's turned into such a big thing. Reflecting back on it, was it one of the best things that ever happened to you? Or was it a happenstance? How do you think about it? It was completely unexpected. Now, I had done a mood disorders fellowship clinically Mm -hmm. while doing a fellowship in the School of Public Health. So I had the skills to be able to develop this kind of intervention and then test it to see if it was Mm -hmm. effective. So that was great. And I'd learn about organizing a group and all of those things. But I was working on genetics projects. I had no passion for that. Not that I don't think it's important work, but I was questioning, gosh, is this what I'm supposed to do? To be doing, I love clinical work, but I didn't feel a lot of passion for that work. And this sounds dramatic, but when I started doing this, I realized that this is what I'm supposed to do. That's amazing. Well, and I think that there's something about a clinician writing a curriculum for high school students that I don't know of it being done otherwise. Yeah. So I had something to teach because I had been taking care of all kinds of people that had Mm -hmm. depression and bipolar disorder. Often I think people get ideas about it, but I think ours are more accurate because we were doctors and nurses taking care of individuals that had these disorders, so we knew more about it. And I think we understood what we hoped friends and family and people that have the illnesses themselves would know. And so we do training for the teachers, obviously. There's a program for the students. It's meant to just be a part of their health class. Mm -hmm. But then we also do parent education. And I can tell you from 20 years experience, the students are ahead of everyone, being (laughs) open to this idea, learning about it, and, and being willing to say, I think I'm going through this or I'm worried about my friend. The parents are the most challenging group. 
because unfortunately we have a legacy in psychiatry, which is if you're not doing well, what's wrong with your family? Oh. But that's like saying, you know, you have asthma. I thought you had good parents. Mm. <laughs> it's just as True. silly. No, but that's how we think about it. And that's the old legacy of psychiatry that this is coming out of parenting. Mm-hmm. But that's just not accurate most of the time. Now, there are times that someone's in a terrible situation, an abusive situation, a very dysfunctional situation where that certainly is contributing. I'm not trying mm-hmm. to minimize that. Mm-hmm. But plenty of the time, that's not what's going on. Mm-hmm. But parents are embarrassed or worried about going because they're afraid of how they might be blamed for what the child's going through. Mm-hmm. That that's makes another sense. barrier to someone getting the help they need. Yeah. So I had a couple of related questions. One thing I want to make sure, absolutely sure does not slip through the cracks. Uh, Dr. Swartz, if someone wants to hear more about ADAP, how can they reach your online program? Can you provide some, some guidance to The best them? thing to do is to Google Hopkins ADAP, which is H-O-P-K-I-N-S space mm-hmm. capital A, capital D, capital A, capital P. Okay. We have okay. another website, but it's just too long. So Hopkins <laughs> ADAP, and that will have all kinds of information, background information, links mm-hmm. to resources, but also we'll say if you're interested and online training. Just to let people know, we have an expectation that if you're going to be trained and teach, that you are officially affiliated with the school. Hmm. We, we want it to be school professionals. We want the school administrators to know what's going on and to have signed off. And I think it's very important that it's actually from the school professionals because that sends a message to the kids that this mm-hmm. is serious. And it's something that they need to know about, which would be different than having volunteers. In one city, we had students that wanted to teach, and I loved their enthusiasm, and they recruited all the schools that participated. But I think when something is as serious as depression, which can be life-threatening, you want to make sure that you have adults identified in the school community that can be resources. Hmm. Our big message is that depression is a treatable medical illness. Mm -hmm. But one of the underlying messages, which is very important, is if you're worried about yourself or a friend, you need to tell an adult. It's great to have the support of your friends, but that doesn't substitute for really getting the help you need. And your 10th grade best friend is not going to be able to arrange an evaluation for you. Hmm. Okay. And for those of you listening to this in the car or on a walk or something, we'll put these resources up on the Humanity Against Disease Facebook and website as well to make it a little easier uh, for people to plug into that if they're interested. So uh, another thing I wanted to bring up is a lot of people's perception of depression is based on what they've seen in the media with things like this 13 Reasons Why and, and you know, over-the-top films movies, songs that might glamorize, it might get things inaccurate. Are there particular myths that you'd like to take this opportunity to dispel or otherwise clear the air on this? Well, first I'd like to dispel the myth that somehow it makes you a better, stronger person to suffer. Hmm. My -hmm. friends who couldn't breathe in middle school because they were told to sit down and take deep breaths in the middle of an asthma attack were not better for it. It Mm -hmm. put their life in danger. 13 Reasons Why is one of the recent programs that just drives me crazy because it really romanticizes suicide. Mm -hmm. And then you have a show in which essentially someone who has tragically died is seemingly still influencing her school community. That is not what happens. If you die, you have died. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're not even talking about things accurately. Yeah, and I feel like that's the fantasy of people contemplating suicide is that they'll somehow 
have more effect by losing their life than they will by continuing to live it. And that's one thing I've tried to tell people is you lose your ability to, to influence the future. You'll never hurt the people you're trying to hurt as much as you hope you will. And you'll hurt the people you don't want to hurt more than you can possibly imagine. Seems to be what, what I've encountered thus far. Well, I also think that people are not thinking clearly. I mean, there's a basic Fair. thing that happens when someone is really depressed or manic. They're, they have cognitive distortions. And by that, I mean their thinking is altered enough that they're not able to make logical conclusions. Hmm. Their reactions to things are way out of proportion. So what I hear in these high school gyms and auditoriums and libraries is, don't you think it's because he broke up with that girlfriend? Mm-hmm. Right now, zillions of people in the high schools of your listeners are breaking up. And now they're doing it during by text message, which is very rude in my opinion. <laughs> that's how they're breaking up. The point is that most kids breaking up are just annoyed or sad or a little bent out of shape about mm-hmm. it. They're not becoming suicidal. But if you're depressed and you are now distorting your reactions and intensity of reactions to things, a pretty typical high school experience might suddenly become devastating. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because it does seem to deplete people's resilience and their resources and their ability to bounce back. It also intensifies their reactions. Hmm. So the analogy I use with patients all the time is that, a, is that if you're feeling well, a little pebble in the pond, you get a little splash. You know, your mm-hmm. reactions to things will be in proportion. Hmm. If you're depressed, a pebble in the pond is a pretty big splash. Hmm. A big rock is a very big splash and a really big rock. Like, I wrecked my dad's car, I failed this test, I didn't get into the college. I mean, all those kinds of things is like a tsunami wave. Yeah. And so you lose your ability to have perspective. And then the thought, which is, you know what? It would be better if I were dead. Mm-hmm. That's just not going to be true. But it's an idea that can take hold and be very powerful in those kind of situations. Dr. Swartz, you recently gave a lecture at the Grand Rounds at Hopkins about marijuana and mood disorders. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that and bring that to a wider audience outside of just our local psychiatry peeps. So cannabis is now being touted as a miracle cure for all kinds of conditions, psychiatric and otherwise. And I wonder how we can have this discussion and speak about the evidence in a way that won't fall upon deaf ears in this current climate where things are being legalized and the the message we're sending as a society is much less hostile toward marijuana than it once was? Well, as a mood disorders-focused doctor, Mm -hmm. what I think about is what does marijuana do to someone who has depression or bipolar disorder? Mm -hmm. And there's very strong evidence that it makes their symptoms worse, it puts them at higher risk of making a suicide attempt, and it puts them at very high risk of the worst kinds of scariest symptoms, like having Mm -hmm. delusional ideas where they're paranoid or feeling that someone may be trying to harm them. And even having those symptoms puts you at risk. So I think the problem is that we're having a conversation where we have some people that don't have those negative effects. I think we have to stop the idea that marijuana has the same effect on everyone. I feel strongly in saying what I've looked at is what happens from the studies if you have depression or bipolar disorder and use marijuana. Not everyone. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And there probably are some subsets of people that have very few negative effects. That's fine, but those aren't the people I'm working with. Mm-hmm. And what I see are young people using this much more potent marijuana that's now available, and they're using this really potent marijuana, and they're coming in with dramatically more severe symptoms than I saw 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Wow. And some recover quickly when they stop using, when they're in the hospital, and others don't. And wow. so the potential of really negative effects on the brain are there. Does everyone have them? No. Does everyone with depression have them? No. But if you take a big group of people with depression versus not, those with depression are going to have more negative effects using marijuana. Okay. It's the same with alcohol. Again, this to me, the, the issue isn't legal, not legal, et cetera. I think mm-hmm. that's getting off the subject. There are people that have depression that if they drink, the medications cannot be effective. Not everyone has mm-hmm. that experience, but there's a subset of people where clearly drinking gets in the way of their being able to get better. Mm-hmm. And there are people with certain medical conditions where you know they shouldn't yeah. drink or they shouldn't smoke or other things. And it's not an easy thing to tell someone, stop doing something that takes away your pain for a short time. Mm-hmm. I think that's why marijuana is so appealing if you're feeling awful, mm-hmm. because many people will say, when I'm intoxicated with it, I feel better. Mm-hmm. But then they'll say afterwards, I still have these paranoid ideas, or I'm feeling worse, or my depressive symptoms are worse. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot of evidence now that those who have mood disorders and use marijuana have a worse course, have worse outcomes, and are spending more time with symptoms than those who are not using. Okay. So based on the studies and based on what we do know now with concrete evidence, if people want to get away from their depressive symptoms effectively, the best course is to abstain from marijuana and to adhere to the the medication and the therapies that have conventionally proven effective? Absolutely. There is very clear evidence that the best treatment for severe depression is a combination of therapy and medication. I think too often we don't include the therapy to help people learn about what they have, challenge these distorted ideas. There are all kinds of elements of therapy that are very important. And they even change as people are getting better and, and helping people to reestablish their confidence and face their lives differently. But it's medication and therapy in combination that's almost always the most effective. But marijuana does not have a place in a treatment plan. Hmm. It is being touted in that way, and I think it's very dangerous. And I think that what we're seeing with more potent marijuana available Mm -hmm. and now very potent THC-laced products available, Mm -hmm. that we're going to, I fear, have a whole subgroup of people where they're actually having more severe symptoms and and really not being able to get well as quickly because they're using. Hmm. So I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it does sound like we have a need for a much more nuanced message about marijuana and, as you alluded, alcohol, that we do need to think about people's vulnerabilities before saying that something is okay for everybody in society to use or not. I think many things are not okay. Mm -hmm. Glazed donuts are not okay if you have diabetes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that we don't talk enough about that. And I think there's a difference between saying, because you have a certain medical condition, I really think this is more dangerous for you than for other people, Mm -hmm. is not saying you're bad or I think that Uh this substance is inherently bad or not. I have no interest in being political about this. Mm -hmm. I have an interest in my patients getting better. And I tell my patients who have 
mood disorders that if they use marijuana or drink large amounts of alcohol, I don't think I'll be able to help them as much. Mm-hmm. And my goal is to help them feel well. And your point about diabetes makes, that kind of resonates with me. Something I try to bring up is that it's not fair. I think sometimes people find when they have a diagnosis of mood disorder or any psychiatric illness that they feel that they're not only suffering from the illness directly, but if we're asking anything of them lifestyle-wise, they feel further upset because this has been thrust upon them and they now have to avoid something that they enjoyed or planned to do. Mm-hmm. So I try and reinforce, like, unfortunately, life is not fair, but if you, if you do things the way I'm suggesting, then you're going to have an easier time, that kind of a thing. Well, that you're talking about the fact that essentially we get really stuck on the things we can't do or mm-hmm. the challenges we face reminds me of something my mother said to me. Mm-hmm. So when I was in high school, it's about genetics. Mm-hmm. When I was in high school, I said to my mother, why do I have daddy's teeth? Mm-hmm. Why don't I have your teeth? <laughs> my mother has perfect teeth. My father has terrible teeth. Mm-hmm. I have terrible teeth. And my mother, an English major, said to me, I don't know, perhaps teeth and the ability to do math are genetically linked. Because you also have your dad's ability to do math, which was quite good, I might say. And she said in her wisdom of someone who wasn't a scientist or working on genetics, like, what is it that with genetics, people only focus on the bad things they get? Hmm. That's true. I do not think we think of ourselves in a nuanced way. We think, I don't like that I'm tall, short, heavy, skinny, this, Mm -hmm. that, whatever, instead of saying, well, how am I going to be the best version of myself that I can be? Hmm. What are the challenges I need to overcome? And what are the great strengths I've been blessed with? Yeah, that's a really good I would still to prefer to have my mom's teeth. <laughs> Duly. But I celebrate my dad's ability to do math. And I think we already touched on this a little bit, but what are some of the, the big things that you wish more people knew about cannabis use, especially going back to your work with adolescents, cannabis use as a youth as it relates to mood? There's another piece that we haven't touched on, and that is that if you have a strong family history of depression and bipolar Mm -hmm. disorder, there's some evidence that it could trigger off these symptoms. Wow. We don't know that if you never used, you wouldn't get them. But we know that those who are using cannabis compared to those who are not have an earlier onset of these illnesses, so they start earlier, Mm. so you have more years where you're dealing with them, and that they tend to be more severe in the kinds of symptoms you have and how frequently you have symptoms. And so it's good if families can be open about whether these illnesses run in the family. And Mm -hmm. if you have a family history, it's really important as a teen when you have a developing brain not to use these substances. Now, that's hard because it is something that's not tricky to find. Mm -hmm. Most teenagers can go to a party this weekend and find alcohol and marijuana. Mm -hmm. And the problem is... Not every teenager at that party would have the same reaction. Mm -hmm. For some, it might give them a mild intoxication and no trouble. Mm -hmm. And for others, it could trigger off a really serious illness that is going to threaten their life. Yeah, and we didn't even touch on the idea of psychotic illnesses, which are also affected by these. Well, that's the set of questions I had. Thank you very much for coming on. And Oh, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> and did you have any further thoughts before we sneak to the supercut section that gets edited in a fancy way? I don't think so. All right. 
Yeah, thanks so much for coming on, Dr. Schwartz. I feel like I learned so much as just a human being about how to live my life and to talk to other people, but also as a future primary care doctor, things that I should do to help people with mood disorders and ways that I should talk to all patients who come to my clinic who are asking about medical marijuana because I still have been finding that conversation difficult because I haven't looked into as much of the evidence as I should myself. So thank you. You're very welcome.